0: Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more and find the store nearest to you.
1: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond find us at heritageradionetwork.org
2: hello out there this is amanda this is- <laughs> and this is kim and we <laughs> We haven't seen each other in a minute. Yeah. Sorry. Can we do it? David, can we start again?
0: Well, this is live, so no.
3: (laughs) Okay. Pretend the music just played again. Hello. What's up, Internet? I'm Amanda. And I'm Kim.
2: And we are Food Book Fair, and you're listening to Recommended Reading with Food Book Fair, our weekly show where we get to download with friends and fam in the industry and beyond about what they're reading, watching, or listening to. Food Book Fair is an annual food media festival celebrating writing about eating, and we're thrilled to be celebrating six years going on seven in New York and hopefully bringing Food Book Fair to your city very soon.
3: We also do green market book signings in collaboration with Grow NYC. We do other events around the calendar year, often in partnership and collaboration with other cool folks in New York City especially, and we're really excited to have later on in our show our special guests, the chefs Amani Ahmad and Ora Wise, talking about a Palestinian pop-up series they're doing next week with a host of other collaborators at Dimes and Lolito in downtown New York, November 13th and 14th. And we'll get to them in a little bit. But first, Amanda, what are you reading, watching, and listening to?
2: Oh, I've waited so long to hear those words from you, Kim. But <laughs> I'm sorry, <laughs> you um, guys
3: are adorable. <laughs> we're just—we're just—we've just taken breaks every other week, though, so it's not like we've been apart that long. But that's true. We're—I b- also see on the table that we're both still reading the same issue <laughs> of the New York Times magazine,
2: which was the first thing that I was going to talk about. Um, I think it's a—we're a week late. I think this was from last week's magazine section, but, um, we've been busy and it's the part that I'm really loving reading is a profile and recipes to go with it of, of five cool people's dinner parties. And each one talks about how they would host their dinner party, what their philosophy is about dinner parties, who they would invite. And then there's recipes, um, I'm working my way through right now. Um, I'm reading Dory Greenspans right now, the uh, pastry chef and author. And what, what I really loved about this was just reminding me that just have people over and cook and share what you love to do and get inspiration from wherever you... wherever you encounter inspiration from. And it just like made me want to put a date on the calendar and invite my friends over and get cooking. And then, after I started reading this, I listened to the Bon Appetit podcast um, with Adam Rappaport and Alison Roman. The author, she has a new book called Dining In. Mm -hmm. And Alison said, don't think about it as entertaining. Think about it as just having people over. And I was like, yeah, that's it. It's sometimes when you think about entertaining, it's like you you get stressed.
3: It's a little bit what Tejal Rao and Sam Sifton say in both of their essays in the same issue of the New York Times magazine, (laughs) where it's like you happen to be cooking and then people come over.
2: Don't think about it more than that.
3: But do maybe plan in advance or figure (laughs) out something you don't have to plan that far in advance. (laughs) Um, Fondue. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm a big fondue advocate. It does come up in Tejal's column.
2: Oh, yeah. Tejal's is about fondue and then she had a crazy technique for the end I'm trying to remember what it was you like take
3: is it the thing with the egg oh the egg I've never heard of that if you're still hungry at the end of a pot of fondue this is not a spoiler for people that (laughs) regularly eat fondue or maybe you're friends with Tejal Rao and if you are call us crack an egg in the bottom once you've scraped all the cheese out but there's a little bit left and then it'll cook from the residual heat and then you can use the potatoes and bread to scoop up whatever there is left Mm -hmm. if you're still hungry
2: Hashtag fondue hacks. I've got to try that. I loved reading about that. Um, And then the other thing that I have not been able to stop reading is an article by the chef owner of Dirt Candy, Amanda Cohen, that was published on Esquire that she wrote about really as a call to action to the press and calling them out on the fact that they've given recently attention to so many female chefs because female chefs are starting to share their stories about harassment and unfair treatment in kitchens that they have worked in and amanda is saying like of course i don't stand for an unjust workplace and I want anyone who's been unfairly treated to come forward. But why are female chefs only getting this type of attention when it has to do with their stories? And why hasn't the press consistently written about them, awarded them with honor, and kept them in the headlines because of their work? And it's, it's a really serious call out to the press. And I highly recommend everyone read it. And thank you, Amanda,
3: for writing it. I gotta check it out. I Please do. I see it do. in my inbox. I can't wait till we no longer live in a world dominated by cis patriarchy and we have a majority-minority country. Well... That comes in 2016. We'll see what comes <laughs> after
2: that. That's Aura that's Wise getting on the mic over there, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> and she's fired Help up.
3: It. <laughs> so maybe this is a good time for us to introduce our guests. Let's do it. Again, we are joined today by the chef and artist, Amani Ahmad, the chef and community organizer... And good friends of ours, uh, Aura Wise, excited to talk to them about a series called The Asymmetrical Table, which is two nights of dinners and dialogue, thought-provoking and delicious, at Dimes in Lolito next Monday and Tuesday. And it will be talking about, the dinners are about food sovereignty here and everywhere. But we'll be talking about that right here, right now as well. Welcome (laughs) to the show. Thank you. We're so happy to have you on. Um, can you give a little bit of an introduction of each of you uh, in your own words? Amani, some folks in food, in and around food, um, and who know of your work as an artist, um, but maybe also have, as a chef may have heard or have even attended your pop-ups that you did at Dimes earlier this summer.
4: Um, Yeah, that was a really fun, exciting series that I did uh, in July and August that was just about bringing Palestinian food to the consciousness of people that enjoy eating food. Uh, I think most people are used to eating a lot of the food that I grew up eating in Palestine and in America, cooked by my family under the moniker of Israeli food. And uh, I just feel like it's uh, important to reframe the conversation and I wanted to use those dinners as an opportunity to present that information in a way that was exciting and delicious and interesting so yeah.
3: cool we're really glad that happened and I was really lucky to be able to dine there with Aura one night which that's I right. think is sort of how exactly. we all met
4: yeah, yeah that's, that's where twice. we found
3: you well I was you. <laughs> <laughs> it's true Aura
4: came and Uh, After she ate, she gave me a lovely gift of spices from our (laughs) friend Ethan, who has a burlap and barrel where he sources beautiful spices, and we're using those in the dinners on Monday and Tuesday, but um, it was really sweet to have an unknown guest come and bring a gift to me. It was lovely. That's how we all met.
3: Hospitality from both sides. Yes.
4: Beautiful thing. (laughs)
5: Laura, you're off. I know how to talk to the ladies. She does. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And yeah, actually, for those of you who come to the dinner at Dimes on Monday, the 13th, um, we're going to have a little treat from Burlap and Barrel for everyone to get to maybe even play with on their own. So check that out. That sounds Um, great. Yeah, there's spices that he sources from a co-op near Janine in Palestine. Um, So I am a chef and um, have actually been involved in Palestine solidarity work since I was a teenager, because I was born in Jerusalem and was raised really ignorant of what was going on there, and then re-educated myself, and then have been involved in sovereignty in general, and now food sovereignty stuff. So um, I was so excited to learn about Amani's dinners here, um, because at... Until then, I had been, like, reading books, which I know um, I see on the table. We have two cookbooks (laughs) side by (laughs) side. side. It's perfect. We have Otelengi and Tamimi's Jerusalem. And we have Leila El um the Gaza Kitchen Project. Um, one is that one is you know a book that's rooted in going, being um, in Palestine with Palestinians and learning about their recipes and ingredients, and also though being really real about the effects of military occupation on their cuisine. You know, certain fish they can't have access to because they're the um, Israeli coastal guard won't let them go enough miles out to fish or red tahina, which is a special ingredient in Gazan cooking that um, won't be allowed through the borders. Um, And I feel like that's kind of context is really missing from Jerusalem, the cookbook, and also just a lot of like Amani is talking about our media around Mediterranean or Middle Eastern or Israeli food in the U.S. is we're excited about the ingredients, but we know nothing about the people and the lands from which they come and which are actually really struggling for all these reasons. So um, we're excited to bring you both the delicious food and some of the context so that not just because, but so that we can all be involved in supporting people and preserving their own cultures that the cuisine is from and based in.
3: Yeah, I think this is something that we, all of us at this table, have talked about separately, um, individually, and in previous conversations. It's uh, now that there is such an interest in where food comes from, what food origins are. People are so concerned about where a carrot comes from or where, where it was grown or what soil was grown in, but not necessarily who grew it mm. or who distributed it or drove it to you or cooked it and for how much money.
2: Yeah. Why do you think there has been such such a an interest or increased attention around, quote unquote, Israeli food or Middle Eastern food lately? And is it you know, and who are the who are the players that are contributing to this media, you know, being available to everyone and people writing about it? And, you know, how, talk a little bit about maybe your work to change that and, and some other resources that you know, people can read for a complete picture
3: which, of course, you can't recenter the entire conversation right. and hundreds of years of oppression <laughs> in a radio show, but
5: we're trying. That's right. This is a giant step for humanity.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think that, like, for example, Jerusalem, the cookbook, right. um, attempts to frame Middle Eastern cooking from that region from the perspective of an Israeli chef and a Palestinian chef, though it kind of glosses over the everything that is unjust about the situation. Um, I mean, I think I've noticed, and you guys have noticed as well, that in media lately, there's been a, a large push towards articles that address this new Israeli food trend And I was just recently in L.A. and I noticed at least five or six new Israeli or Mediterranean restaurants that aren't even touting themselves as Israeli, but the media is calling them Israeli and referencing, like, you know, shakshuka, such a classic Israeli dish, or za'atar, which, I mean, I personally uh, am very passionate about za'atar because that's something like my family has always foraged in Palestine, but... We no longer have access to the land to forage zata, And there's also laws against foraging because the Israeli government claims that because of foraging, we're endangering different botanical species, which, I mean, I don't necessarily think is accurate after generations of foraging and that species still being abundant. But I think there's just like a, a large media push that is mostly based on ignorance and just lack of knowledge of where these things come from and who these people are that are making the food because it's the classic story of an underdog that doesn't have access to media and doesn't have access to resources to open restaurants in the United States and open these like beautiful eateries in you know metropolitan Manhattan that are gorgeous and instagrammable and called Palestinian I mean uh, my collaborator on the dinners this week, Reem of Reem's Bakery in Oakland, has suffered a lot of backlash for opening a Middle Eastern eatery, but then lauding her Palestinian heritage and being representative of the Palestinian struggle. So mm. there's like a, a really strong backlash if you embrace your Palestinianness in this world that isn't set up for that. So if you've got reams, but then you've got 10 Israeli eateries that don't acknowledge what the food that they're cooking is inspired by, it's pretty difficult for people to be aware of what Palestinian food is.
3: I think it's really important that you include the context that this world is simply not set up for people who are marginalized or who are minorities, because a lot of the times the conversations that we have about uh cultural appropriation um that are not about food sovereignty or and that and speaking of sovereignty we're just talking about everyone's right to have healthy affordable culturally appropriate food and food that you grew up cooking food that you grew up eating and have that be yours in some way whatever you mean by that um I think some of the confusion is people... It, it kind of becomes about chops. It becomes authenticity. It comes about becomes about who gets to cook what. But it's not really about who gets to cook what if we live in a world where you don't necessarily have that right even if you've inherited it and you have that emotional connection to it.
5: Also, also the who gets to cook what conversation often centers it around restaurants and the restaurant industry, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's like... An important way that all of the power dynamics mm-hmm. we're talking about play out, but there, it's it's you know what Amani was just bringing mm-hmm. up is like the issues and how they play out in terms of like just everyday folks in their communities in terms of reading. Yeah, that's what I uh, actually. Um, I, I see Aura uh, has her her tra- recommended her reading. To go. <laughs> I've, I'm now actually my new title is just Amani's Private Librarian. <laughs> um, <laughs> But actually, Ali Abu Nima, who's a Palestinian-American writer and activist, actually two years ago wrote um, a post on the electronic intifada called Why Sahla ben Humus Still Aren't Israeli, which will be a great lead in for maybe Amani talking, giving us a teaser for her and Reem's menu, but also on like the positive side, not just... Criticizing, which we need to, but also like supporting each other and the people whose food this is. Um, probably a lot of people in New York know Tanarin, which is the classic Palestinian restaurant in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, which is, you know, kind of one of the little Middle East of New York. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's actually a woman chef owner, Ra- Rawia Bashara, and she has a
3: cookbook out, which came we out. We did an event with Rawia and our daughter in 2014. Word! At Food Book Fair. Yeah, so... Shout out Tanarine.
5: Yeah, so Olives, Lemons, and zaatar is her cookbook. And I think that, like, a lot of people have Otolengi cookbooks as their main... A lot of white people in the UK and the US have um, often, like, because they don't have real relationships with folks outside of their own cultures... um, rely on uh, these gatekeepers or, like, translators. Um, and it's how certain people who aren't from a certain culture, like, then position themselves. Well, I mean, there's tons of these people. I mean, everyone, some people we respect, right? Like, Diana Kennedy or, like, um, uh, you know, and then even we have Andy Ricker, who is, you know, cooking in the Israeli Culinary Festival roundtables that is coinciding with our Palestinian asymmetrical table, which Amani will break down why we named it that in a second, um, who make, you know, a living off of kind of introducing, you know, dominant culture to a different culture's cuisine. Um, So anyway, so Rawia's cookbook is a way to like get it straight from the folks whose food it is. And, and it's interesting to see the differences. Um, but that was why we were exciting. We were excited to come together to have a meal that was all about two Palestinian women chefs um, telling their own story. Mm-hmm. And 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 so I want Amani to break down her brilliant title. Oh. But yeah. um, but what inspired it was kind of that we are a part of this global movement, like you're saying, Kim, of people. Um, working for food sovereignty, right. um, which is particularly um, important for people um, who are indigenous and have been dis- either displaced from their lands or really um, constricted and cut off from their traditional food ways as Palestinians have. Yeah,
3: been. and I think another thing to connect to, to the very earliest part of this conversation, what you were talking about, Amanda, uh, with Amanda Cohen's piece about why mainstream media does not write enough does not write about women chefs, period. It's about how do we hold press accountable, more accountable than we do, and how do we turn them into advocates and allies? And also, instead of us doing all the work to do that, how do we get them to wise up to do that? Right, and also... Or how do they, you know, want to do that themselves?
2: would love to, you know, hear Amani and and Ora's thought and really going back and, and understanding the media behind you know, quote unquote, food trends mm-hmm. and why certain things have become trendy mm-hmm. and why people want to write about Israeli food as we know it, you know, and and how can we, you know, as people that have a small voice and a small audience, reframe that and, and understanding the the process of, of why, of how things become trends and, and how we can you know reconfigure that why do you think israeli food is is having a moment of being trendy now
4: um i think it really fits into the current cultural paradigm of this really beautiful healthy fresh ingredient oriented farm to table thing that we all like or that people like and associate with being healthful and associate with being responsible socially um you know, obviously, Israeli food has a, a darker side where, you know, the, this, as Ora was mentioning, the round tables initiative that Israel and American Express put on that encourages chefs from all over the world to come and cook farm to table cuisine in these very gastronomically advanced, you know, metropolitan kitchens of Tel Aviv, which is also, you know, pushed as this beautiful exciting city where you can be whoever you want to be in it. and it's very similar to New York or wherever I mean I've never actually been to Tel Aviv because that's you know my choice but uh, I've never really spent time in Israel uh, at all other than going through the airport but, so I can only kind of speculate on why people like it so much, but I hear from people that go there that when they go there, they experience this beautiful place. So I think people associate this beautiful, exciting place with this beautiful, exciting cuisine, and then it's also exotic in a way, even though it's exotic within an arm's reach like it's exotic but it's not too exotic that it's inaccessible and it's not the flavors are flavors that maybe we've had in different ways and other types of food but they're not so spicy that we can't access them and can't eat them and they're not super weird ingredients they're all it's all pretty relatable but presented in this way that's beautiful and delicious and exciting and to me i think that's why israeli food is becoming so popular um but i don't know what do you think orah
5: I mean, I think that it has a lot to do with that, like, translating process, that, mm. and that's kind of what you're talking about, Amani, is, um, you know, I'll just take a really concrete example, which I was emailing you guys about before, <laughs> you know, this we see everywhere in the U.S. Israeli couscous, mm. and... It's um a term that has been coined that has, it, that claims a food that so many different cultures eat some version of. Shall we
3: call it something else starting right in the, in art for the sake of our conversation here?
5: Um well, my proposal was <laughs>
3: transcultural multi-historical couscous, but um
5: I mean, it really we it it's pearled wheat yeah. balls. It's and pearl balls. Yeah, like Palestinians have maftul and you know s- like southern Italians have, um, well, I mean, there's a chili de pepe and there's fregola. I mean, Hungarians have a version, Iranians have a version, Lebanese have a version. So that just like shows it's like there's this branding that happens that just erases um, all of this, you know, kind of trans cultural uh, culinary and, you know, sharing.
4: I I think that's something that's really important for me to address, which is that I, I do think that all cultures are melting pots of the cultures that comprise them. Yeah, there's it, no purity. There's no it's not like it's not like Israeli couscous was just something that someone came up with in the lab in like the nineteen fifties and was like, hell yeah, this is Israeli couscous. <laughs> like no, it it's a thing that developed by way of a lot of different people making a version of it. So to put this label on it that Isolates it from everything that preceded it is mm-hmm. so strange to me. Mm-hmm. It's it's very, I don't, it's very strange. Um, and I think that actually speaks to
5: um, Amanda the trend question. What I thought of when you said that is there's this um, there's it's just a treating food as a commodity and nothing mm-hmm. else. It's a commodification mm-hmm. mentality. Mm-hmm. So it's like of course people are only thinking in trends if they're only thinking of. Um, relating to food and culture through transactions. Mm-hmm. And I think that so then it's like a product mm-hmm. divorced of its cultural and historical context. Um, and actually, that reminds me of one of the dishes that's on the menu. You were saying, Amani, why you chose to do um, to use a dish with frike, mm-hmm. which is also kind of hot grain hot whole grain. It's
4: the hot grain du jour, <laughs> I would say. It's it's on the up and up. Tell tell, tell us this. more about
3: this hot green uh, wheat.
4: It's so sexy. I <laughs> have I grew up eating Frika in like probably the most like peasant like form, which is like a, a goopy stew with mm. chicken. Oh, and I want it, some right now. It's really great. Um but I'm gonna make a version of that as I recall eating it. But um that's, like, how I grew up eating it. And now here I see it on menus all the time, and it's presented in, in different forms, and it doesn't look the same. Like, it's not green a lot of the times. Like, well, the way that they harvest it is, is by burning the wheat and then rubbing off all the chaff, and then there's just, like, the cracked green. Beautiful. It's like the, It almost looks like jade, like bamboo rice. Mm. It's really, really nice, um, chewy, delicious. Mm. But I wanted to make that just so that I could present it in the form that I know to be the, the the way to cook it. Not that you can't make it other ways, because you obviously can, but that's the way that's authentic t- in my experience. So.
5: And for me, like, I, I have a connection to the foods of that land, and also, of course, like, Jewish culture contains many, many cultures. It's just, you know, it falls in... Uh, in line with a lot of the problems we're talking about also in terms of, you know, being presented as really mm. Eurocentric and all these things. But there are many, many cultures that have formed kind of the collective Jewish consciousness. And for me, one of the exciting things um, about getting to work with Reem and Amani in, in presenting these dinners um, is uh, is a reason why actually um, one of the producers, the Jewish Voice for Peace, which is the fastest growing Jewish organization in the U.S. That's actually, um, why they're supporting it is because for us it's about um, delinking. Jewishness with this unequivocal um, nationalism, nationalist support of the state of Israel as the Jewish state, trying to represent us when we're like that does not represent us, and we can feel a love of and connection to all these different um, elements of history and culture, including food, um, and. Even place like places like Jerusalem without needing to dominate them and destroy everyone in our path, you know? Right. And so it's really exciting to be um, able to de link. Um, my identity from that, like, colonial project and instead yeah. just work with the original peoples of that land to celebrate the um, sustainable, traditional methods of growing, harvesting, and preparing food that are being destroyed by occupation.
3: Yeah, I mean, I we've talked about this as well, that um, nothing exists in a vacuum. Food certainly does not. And recognizing... Uh, Indigenous folks recognizing credit where credit is due, recognizing history and deep time is a real thing. But it becomes harder and harder to do that and to bring it back to media because we are food media. Uh, You're resident food media analysts here. (laughs) Um, I think part of it is, and Amanda, we've talked about this as well and I talked about this a bit and when I did a talk on cultural appropriation a couple weeks ago, is sort of in our consumption of food and how we do it. Snaps, through social media, how we do it in uh, a sort of way where people treat dining out or eating out as a blood sport and a way to collect restaurants, mm-hmm. collect experiences. Mm-hmm. That, again, sort of emphasizes the commodi- food as a commodity and experience as a commodity. It's right. like culinary conquistadors. Right. And
2: divorcing ourselves from the origin stories of where food comes from. And yeah. just
3: but also, you know, I used to be a reporter, and uh, since I stopped being a reporter how news travels and the way media needs to keep up with the content churn has just gotten more and more uh, intense, shall we say. And you always need a new story. And people love trends. You're people t- people love are just trends. trying to
5: get clicks. Actually, speaking of trends, um, one of the things... I'm so <laughs> glad I, bought I brought up trends. I'm so <laughs> ready to talk about that, Amanda. Um, One of the other chef organizers who's joining us for the second dinner, the one at Lalito, which is going to include a dynamic dinner conversation, actually just want to, in terms of giving credit where credit is due, um, we were inspired by some of the programming at Food Book Fair this past spring. Shout out, Food Book Fair (laughs) 2017. (laughs) For ways to have, like... Meaningful conversation and awesome food. Um, but Neftali Duran, who's an indigenous Oaxacan chef, um, is a part of the I Collective, which is hosting actually a series of indigenous pre colonial cuisine pop ups on and around Thanksgiving in NYC. At Dimes. At Dimes um, and Pixie and the Scout in Brooklyn. And um, he's going to be a part of our conversation. Um, and for him, like, he actually sent me this little text earlier because I was like, why are you know, what do you have to say? To you're <laughs> you're adoring fans, yeah. um, you know, and he was like, for me, um, the inequalities I see in the food system um, dramatically affect indigenous and people of color. Um negatively whether we're talking about the barrio the res or Palestine mm. um, so he's looking to make those connections and why the wide why trends as a topic brought, made me think of that is because we see these little openings um, in mainstream food media um, being where there's an interest in indigenous food ways um, and uh, it's really important, and it's an opening that we can then kind of maybe bust open even wider. Um, and because still sometimes, like what you're saying, Kim, is like the dynamic is still kind of acquisitional, mm. you know? So it's like I got to get my points. I got to, um, you know, it's still kind of a, a like explorer Lens a lot of the time I'm having so many wardrobe issues with my headphones. Thank God for you, Amanda. <laughs> um, but, uh, but then also like the thing is if you're not actually figuring out ways to support native producers, you know, right. so that they're able to own and benefit from their own traditional foodways, And instead you're just like incorporating indigenous foods into your menus that aren't in any way going back to those communities. Um, then you're not actually transforming right. our society, sorry to say. I
3: well, think we should come up with a better word for trend in terms of <laughs> popularizing and recognizing food ways and food practices and foodstuffs connected to history in multiple cultures. But perhaps we'll have to do that over the commercial break <laughs> yes. for Heritage Radio Network so we can support our hosts all of our hosts here, are the producers, engineers, and the family of radio folks that keep us on air. Yeah,
2: we'll be back after a short break. But just wanted to give everyone the website uh, for information about uh, the Asymmetrical Table. It's the Asymmetrical Table info. So please look at that and take a look at the upcoming dinners in New York and information beyond that. So we'll be back shortly.
0: Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Whole Foods Market believes in seeking out local, fresh, and seasonal food and in supporting local farmers, makers, and the community as a whole, economically and agriculturally. Whole Foods Market believes in food that is vivid and colorful, fresh and full of nutrients. Food that connects you to your body, the seasons, and to nature. Food that helps you do more, sleep better, and wake up happier. Found in over 400 locations throughout the United States, Whole Foods Market only sells food that meets their standards, which means no artificial colors, flavors, preservatives, or sweeteners, ever. Whole Foods Market believes in real food. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more.
2: Welcome back. back. This is Recommended Reading with Food Book Fair. We are joined in the studio by Amani Ahmad, chef, and also Aura Wise, another amazing, (laughs) talented chef. And they're here with us discussing the asymmetrical table. You can check out the asymmetricaltable.info and the dinners that they're hosting in New York um, as part of this project. Um, So, Amani, tell us a little bit about the table. About the table. Tell
3: us a little bit about the (laughs) name. I love to tell you about the table. It's asymmetrical. Yeah, it's asymmetrical.
4: asymmetrical table. Tell us. (laughs) Well, the impetus for doing these dinners was the thing I mentioned earlier, the round tables um, initiative culinary project um, that serves to bring gastronomical diversity to Tel Aviv. Um, And Aura was actually the one that, informed me about it and we had a little pow wow and chatted and thought that it would be fun to do these dinners that reframed the conversation and were kind of a positive aside to something that I don't feel that positive about Um, but when we were naming it I thought that the asymmetrical table was a very succinct way to talk about how the conversation isn't very round. It's not very even. It's not very accommodating for all sides um, on all levels from food to human rights to mm, everything pretty much. There's not really a lot of equanimity involved with that. So that's why I wanted to call it the asymmetrical table. Also happens (laughs) to be the way that the tables are shaped at dimes where we will be doing the dinner on the 13th. They're all these beautiful candy colored different shaped tables it was a lovely accident shout out to our boo sabrina shout out to yeah. that <laughs> genius um yeah so that's why it's very appropriate
3: and can you give us a little bit of a preview of the menu that you and Reem Asil from Reem's california have been putting together i've gotten a little bit of a hint via many back and forth emails <laughs> and i just get hungrier and hungrier it's an exclusive preview here yeah, you, you heard it here
4: first it's true um <laughs> Well, I think one of my favorite things on the menu is possibly the most simple, basic thing, but it's so emblematic of Palestinian food specifically. And it's something you've probably had in different, thank you, in different forms. Uh, Zatar, but it's zait and Zatar, which is oil, olive oil, Palestinian olive oil specifically. And Zatar, which is Zatar- ground up mixed with sesame seeds and it's two little dishes and it'll be served with warm fresh made pita that reem will be making she is a very talented baker something that i don't really have in my repertoire but she not can yet hold that yeah. not yet but she can hold that down um but it's a really simple starter of just taking this warm delicious pita bread and ripping off pieces and dipping it in the oil and then dipping it in the zata and that's like so quintessential to me like that's something i would eat as a snack that's something i would eat for breakfast i would eat that for i would just eat it whenever it's so good and tangy and so specifically palestinian to me uh, i'm sure other middle eastern countries also do that but to me it really feels palestinian it's a way that again like similar with the frica, it's the it's the pure way that i've experienced that and it's different than a lot of places here where maybe Put zata or like on a pita with olive oil and make it into like a little pizza or something like that. It's like just kind of it's more primary form. Um, so yeah,
3: that's really beautiful. And I think we definitely recommend as our recommended reading, by the way, that everyone check out the essay that you wrote which uh, is at the um, asymmetricaltable.info, which was on the back of all the menus at Dimes during the first go-round where you did your pop-up, where you speak so eloquently and straightforwardly. Thank you. Really, this is really, I think this is something that sort of stuck with me after that dinner, and it's remarkable to have you in here in studio as well, speaking live in real time in the same way, how you speak about... um, and and this I can't help but think about this when you talk about the menu, about olive oil, and the Palestinian farmers not having access to olive groves or having them destroyed, um, and then the zaatar that you talk about that you talked about early on in the show, how your family for generations has foraged for it and now is not able to, to sort of um, whether people know when they're eating it, whether they just think of it as this as beautiful, primary, delicious, primal sensation the sensual uh, experience or whether they know of that deeper meaning i think there's something definitely something there
4: yeah i mean yeah
3: and then also the menu
5: is split kind of it's a combining
4: yeah that was something i really wanted to do because it kind of resonates with the situation there i mean i've never been to gaza uh, i grew up in utah and in the west bank and i've never been to Gaza. And I really wanted to collaborate with Reem because she's a, a Gazan chef and I wanted to kind of highlight the disparity in cuisine between the two regions that are, as a result of just the, the borders and what there is access to. She's making a fish dish for uh, the main. Which I've never even had a Palestinian fish dish because we don't have access to fish in the West Bank. Um, That's deep. Yeah, and we, it's we not that. that far away. It's from not. The it's sea. a very tiny place <laughs> in this region. It's they very just small. Can't
5: get through.
4: Yeah, you can't get through, and you know people from Gaza can't get out. Uh, originally, when we talked about doing these dinners, uh, Or and I talked about having a chef from each part of the Palestinian factions. There's the Gaza, the West Bank, and Jerusalem. Because what a lot of people don't know is that in Palestine, there's different identification cards that people hold from each region. And you're only allowed to exist within the space that your identification card uh, claims you as. So if you're from Gaza, you can only be in Gaza. If you're from the West Bank, you can only be in the West Bank. And if you're from Jerusalem, you can only be in Jerusalem. Obviously, there's like special permits and, Mm. you know, Uh, visas you can get to go to Jerusalem. But most people in my family are not allowed to go to Jerusalem, which is a place where my mother went to high school. But now when we go there, she has to apply for a visa. We can advance just so we can go for the day. So I wanted to highlight how having these separations between people that are not very different has really affected what they cook and what they have access to and how they've Adapted to make these recipes that are traditional in slightly different ways because of what they have. It's also awesome because I think
5: it shows that on the positive side, it shows the like rich diversity of Palestinian culture and, and cuisine. the resiliency. Yeah, because there are people who are often not only represented as one monolithic people but are actually one represented as one monolithic bad guy right you know in western media for sure so it's like not only are people learning about palestinians from a different angle from sitting in a different maybe angle of the table but also getting to see the diversity and richness yeah kim and resilience and also actually technically we at least have 48 represented because Reem's grandmother is from Yafa, which Mm -hmm. is within Palestine 48, which became the state of Israel. Where there are also Palestinians who, those who remain, managed to remain on the land, became then second class citizens um, within Israel and are restricted and, you know, in all kinds of other ways. So there's all these separations that then Reem and Amani are breaking down the barriers between each other and coming
4: together.
3: What has it been like to work together so far? Well, I haven't met mostly her yet. remotely. <laughs> I know,
4: but um, you know, what? we have some emails. They're really fun. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, it's been it's been nice. It's been interesting. I've never collaborated with another Palestinian person, especially not on food, aside from like my mom or my grandma mm. or my aunts when we're all sitting around rolling grape leaves. But that's very different because um, this is. I I don't know, it's really interesting and exciting. Another female chef who's very independent and empowered and also very interested Mm. in these same issues. Mm.
3: And can you talk a little bit about how you came to cook Palestinian food as part of your public life? Oh, I think a lot of people probably know you as an artist, first and foremost.
4: Yeah, um, I think... I only re- I've always liked cooking, and I've always been very exploratory with my own cooking and eating, and I was raised with parents that loved to cook, um, but I first cooked Palestinian food as part of my practice for my senior exhibition at Cooper Union, and at the time, I didn't even really realize what I was doing, and I actually made my mom cook most of the food because I was making <laughs> other stuff. <laughs> Thanks, Mom. Um, but that was the first time I, I came to do it because it just seemed – like a really important part of my identity Mm. that I needed to address. Um, As someone that's grown up in a very non-traditional Palestinian way, but in, you know, living in New York for the last nine years, growing up in Salt Lake City, being in the West Bank, going back and forth, and not ever feeling, you know, fully Palestinian or fully American, it was important for me to discuss that and discuss Mm. the ubiquity of, like, that experience Mm. and, like, share these flavors and share you know one of the my favorite things in that first palestinian meal was bringing like these tiered baskets of green almonds to share with everyone because no one had ever had these but these were just like a snack that i liked to eat as a kid and they're so interesting and fun and exotic i think food especially in this context is a really appropriate and disarming way to talk about larger issues Mm. and i think it's um you know, for me, I approach activism in a, in a maybe like a, a subtle way where I'm not, you know, maybe always out there waving banners or holding signs or whatever, but I find that it's easier for me to talk about things with other people if I feel like I'm doing it in a way that they don't feel um, disarmed by or, or armed by rather, mm. where they feel comfortable and they can understand it and it doesn't become an issue of. Religion or whatever it is that people get bristled about. Mm. But we can just talk about food because everyone likes food and you need food and you want food and it's delicious and it's great and it can be evocative in so many ways. Mm -hmm. Um,
3: I love how you put it that way, I think. Um, I've certainly read a number of stories about food in the greater Middle East, and I'll put all of those words I just said in scare quotes. (laughs) Um, where there's always a quotation where someone says, but can't hummus bring us together? Or, but of course, food is the common denominator. Or food, well, you know, we can have that hope that food is what's going to solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which is, I feel to the reader, sort of insulting. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think your framing of it as it, using it as an assertive tool is a really beautiful way of talking about it.
5: Yeah, and it's not because a lot of the time what you're talking about, Kim, is like representing as some like frivolous squabble. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right.
4: And like, yeah, it is insulting. It's like, oh, it's, no one invented hummus. Yeah. It's oh, like,
5: why are they fighting over it? They're just like fighting over it. It's so frivolous. And um, and it's like, no, actually, people are fighting for their lives, actually. Um, and to be able to you know, eat what they need to eat and actually also live in a home and on a land. Right. And so, um, but it doesn't mean why like Amani and Reem both are just such Mm. powerful change makers Mm. and artists is that because it doesn't mean then that it has to be negative. It can be this evocative, powerful tool. They're both creating really positive spaces, not just for themselves and other Palestinians, but for all of us, you know, like Reem's, in Oakland is a place where, like, all my friends go and hang out and have Mm -hmm. a beautiful space to be in. They've also all had to mobilize to, like, support Mm Reem as really racist Zionist organizations have staged protests outside and and Yelp attacks and all these things, this, like, intense backlash. Um, uh, And so, but that is, like, they don't let it stop them from it being, like, This is a positive cultural space
3: for us. Right. I think part of it in larger conversations that people of color have and communities of color and indigenous communities have um, about just connected to food and cultural appropriation, which, of course, is connected to larger conversations about economic appropriation Ah, that allows cultural appropriation to happen in the larger if we are going to reframe it, struggle for sovereignty and resiliency for everybody all over this planet, is sometimes it's like, shit, we're already trying to survive here. Can we just have uh, zater Can we just have synagogue? Can we, can we just have collard greens? Don't take this from us, too, kind of thing.
5: That the privileged folks get upset. Yeah. They have to think too hard. <laughs> it's too much thinking. <laughs> but, yeah. but we're saying sure you can enjoy them and help us enjoy Let's them just think and come to, think ta- more, yeah. come to our asymmetrical table come to our asymmetrical
2: table enjoy the food speaking of asymmetrical table again the info is the asymmetrical table <laughs> dot info dot info um, and if you're in New York the dinners will be held On Monday, the 13th at Dimes and Tuesday, the 14th at Lalito and Lalito will also include a discussion portion prior uh, or uh, alongside the dinner as uh, I'm sure the women in the room have organized. So beautifully. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to do
5: that over pizza. (laughs) Oh,
2: gotcha. Um, So please join them. And thank you so much for listening. And thank you so much to Omani and Ora for being here with us and sharing so much knowledge with us.
3: Just a little bit of a note on that dinner dialogue. Uh, It's going to be a panel discussion moderated by Clancy Miller. Yay. who is an amazing chef and cookbook author and participant in Food Book Fair 2017. <laughs> um, and including other speakers, Aura, uh, Neftali Duran, who we mentioned earlier, Reem and Amani will be speaking as well. I will be doing the introduction and very honored to be doing that. And we're very happy to be supporting all this work that we're doing together. You guys are
5: amazing. Thank yeah, you thank for you. having us and supporting this.
3: We'll be here to to... Fight white supremacy and the cis patriarchy <laughs> yes. on the radio any chance we get.
2: It was really our pleasure to have you both. And
3: thank you. Thank you. So it's theasymmetricaltable.info. <laughs> you can also find out more information. We did a couple posts about it at Food Book Fair on Instagram and Twitter. You just follow the links in there. And we hope to see you if you're in New York next Monday and Tuesday. See you there. Thanks.
4: Recommended reading is powered by Simplecast. Simplecast is a popular hosting and analytics platform that allows podcasters to easily host and publish to apps like Apple Podcasts. If you have a podcast or are looking to create your very first, check it out. Try it for free and save half off your first three months at simplecast.com forward slash heritage.